Hello, welcome back to Unexplained Oregon. How are you, Christine? I'm doing really good, Kim. I'm so glad to be here. This is Christine time and Kim time. <laughs> Christine know. and Kim time. Why you're saying that, we were just talking and I was explaining to Christine that my mom doesn't know what a podcast is, but she knows that it's it's really important time <laughs> that I take. I can't go walking during these times, right? right. So it's Christine she calls time. it my Christine time. Yeah. So we are back for my Christine time, <laughs> Unexplained Oregon. I'm so glad to be here. I hope everyone that's listening is glad to be here too. Uh, we had a fun talk last week um, on the old state hospital. <laughs> if you haven't heard it, go listen to it. I'm still thinking about it, and the wheels are turning, mm -hmm. you know, what we're going to cover there, man. But if you haven't checked us out on Instagram, please do so. We're unexplained or, mm -hmm. right? Unexplained or. On Instagram. And we have a Facebook page. We also have our Gmail account. Keep the stories coming because our last episode that we covered on the State Hospital was actually inspired by a listener story from Juan. And uh, we're excited to hear more from everybody. It is giving us ideas on what to cover. And I love it. I love it that we have people out there listening that are actually sending us their stories and wanting us to cover stuff. It makes it very exciting for us. Yeah, I mean, we keep getting messages and people are texting us too and like, hey, have you heard this yeah. one? Have you heard of even more for cases from other places when we do another episode of that? I mean, it. yeah, we love it and it's inspiring. So keep it coming. Yes. So keep it coming. Give us some likes. Write us a review. We list, We read everyone and every single one we get so excited about it. I'm not just saying that. We really do get excited about it, people. So uh, if you could do that for us, it'd be great. Today we're going to cover a pretty serious subject and it, we're going to cover an actual sick, a sick asshole <laughs> Named John Arthur Aykroyd. And I mean, I don't, I don't want to laugh about it. This guy is a total asshole serial killer from our state of Oregon. And what makes this guy creepy is he's really only, he was put in uh, prison for two crimes that we know of. But the potential of where they think this guy went with his uh, murder spree is, I mean, they don't know how many people he killed and the potential. And, you know, at first you would have suggested watch Ghost of Highway 20. Yeah. It's a documentary out there put together really well. And I caught it on YouTube. And when you threw it out there, I literally thought I was going to be watching like a ghost store, like the Cannon Beach ghost guy that walks the highway that people see. Immediately, I turned this on, and that is not what this is. This is an actual story about a, a sick freak named John Arthur Aykroyd. And I just want to warn people, uh, you're probably going to hear a lot of cussing out of me today, a lot of F-bombs, because... Just the more and more I started researching this fucker, I started getting mad yeah. and just angry. And then I would look at his picture and just get creeped out. And 
So actually, in my notes, Christine, I refer to the guy as fucktard, asshole, and creepy fuck. Like that. So I'm sorry if that language offends you, but it really, the more and more I, I started reading and researching about this jerk, I started to get angry. And what really upset me was, you know, we all know that anger, anger thrives from fear right yeah so we're, we're scared of something our mind actually goes to anger uh it's fight or flight right your, your your mind is telling you to get angry about this you're fighting that fear and if just one person would have feared this guy way back when when we when one of his first crime in 1977 if one person would have feared this fucker and gotten angry about him we probably wouldn't be sitting here today talking about hmm. him. And so as I started watching this documentary on YouTube, kudos to Noelle Crombie from The Oregonian. It's done very well. She researched this guy for years. Wow. And quite frankly, I don't know how she did it. Because just in the short amount of time that I did it, I needed I needed breaks from it mm -hmm. because I got so angry. I got so enraged and angry about it. But it definitely everyone needs to stop after they listen to this and go watch Ghost of Highway 20. You can catch it on YouTube. The the photography it's done really well. The photography is done by Beth Nakamura. Uh, the video is done by Dave Killen. And like I said, Noelle Crombie from the Oregonian researched this for years and put this information together, and it's quite compelling. Our backdrop for this story is Highway 20, and we've talked about the mystery of Oregon yeah. and, and, and all the forest and, and how, you know, that provides such a creepy backdrop, and it really does in this story because uh, this guy was a highway road mechanic that worked on Highway 20 for, for, for years. And so uh, we're going to go into all that. But U.S. Route 20 is a major uh, west-east cross-state highway in our state, in the northern part of our state. It connects U.S. Route 101 in Newport on the central Oregon coast to the Idaho state line. Okay. So... The east end of this is Idaho. The west end is uh, US 101 in Newport, Oregon on the coast. So there's a lot of stretch of highway there that this guy traveled for many years. And that's what makes the story so creepy. It really does. Mm -hmm. uh, luckily, he was caught. We're going to talk about that today. But uh, we're definitely going to start with Ghost of Highway 20. Okay. I have to say, I remember I started it again. I think I've watched it like maybe three times. I don't know that I've watched it the whole way through because it just creeped me out. But it's, I think the reason why it's so good is because it's kind of haunting a little bit. It's not about ghosts, but it's hauntingly disturbing. It's very hauntingly disturbing. The interviews are done in black and white. Lucinda Williams is a musician that did the music for it. And there's this song that they play in it. It was stuck in my head every time it came on. I know this road like the back of my hand. I know, I know it. Right? 
I know. Farms and truck stops. I mean, seriously, you guys, listen to this. And just her her voice and her, I know, and her, the music and the way it's shot. Like a beckamore. Like a beckamore. I mean, it it grabs you, you know? And it, it really did. It's done really well. I'm so glad you suggested that I watch it. <laughs> You're such a good friend. I know I'm just looking out for you. I wanted to, you know, know. really disturb you. Exactly. But so uh, the first episode of this, there's five episodes in this documentary. And the first uh, case they go into is um, this interview with this woman named Marlene Gabrielson. And she is really our known, our first known victim of John Arthur Ackroyd. Mm-hmm. And this happened in 1977. At the time, he was 29 years old. So that says a lot to me. This was a pretty brutal, violent crime. Yeah. And there's some uh, pretty key pieces of information here that suggest that this wasn't his first crime. Okay. So if you think about it then... That's creepy. This is just the first known victim is Marlene, and she's on there, and she's being interviewed, and she's grown now and talking about this. At the time, she was a 17-year-old. At that tender young age, she was already a mom. She was married, and uh, she had planned a camping trip with her husband and had left her child with her mother-in-law, and... So they go camping, and uh, they're camping near sisters. And for, she's drinking. She ends up getting drunk, and she ends up in a fight with her husband. And, uh, you know, she's 17 years old. She's out there. She at one point roams out to the highway, highway to find out, you know, kind of ca- try to catch a ride, and she can't. And, she ends up going back to the campsite and she accepts a ride home with John Arthur Ackroyd. He tells her he can take her home. And so, I mean, not not thinking and definitely not in her right mind at this point. She just wants to get home to her child. Okay. So she accepts a ride home with the guy. She ends up in her car in his car. This is creepy shit. Immediately when she gets in the car, she's drunk, but she notices that there's no door handles on the inside. Oh, my god! And there's no friggin' uh, things to roll down the window. So we talk about our mom warning signs that we throw out there for all our listeners. That's fucking one of them, man. You get in a car and there's no handles on the inside, find a weapon or something. So you can jab it into the guy's eyeball. Well, not only like, that, quickly. I mean, this was the 70s where people were like regularly hitchhiking, right? I mean, exactly. it was totally the culture then. And that's what she initially tried to do. She initially mm-hmm. tried to hitch hitchhike and go back home. Uh, and so she accepts this ride home. So sad. She, you know, that definitely pulls up that feeling in her gut like um, this guy isn't right. But she's so drunk that she actually falls asleep and crazy yeah yeah so all kinds of things going wrong here and she falls asleep but at she as she's falling asleep she notices that he has like a huge hunting knife stuck in this coffee can (laughs) he also has a gun uh 
it it I think it was probably described as like a hunting rifle uh, on a rack behind them. And so she knows this. She's still in the car with a guy at this point. She can't get out no matter what she does, right? Uh, so she goes to sleep. She actually, yeah. She, well, I think that's probably because she was just, she had had so much to drink that she couldn't help mm-hmm. it. You know, she probably wanted to stay awake, but just couldn't. And so. Sure. And back then actually, people were hitchhiking and it was no big deal. I mean, and she knew this guy, right? Someone at where she was at knew him. Yeah. And so. True. <laughs> And he's older, and I think she even says on there, he's an older guy. She felt like it was going to be a safe ride home, and she just wanted to get home to her kid. So, really scary. She wakes up. Trigger warning for everybody here. We're going to talk about what happened to Marlene. And it's very disturbing and really upsetting. Uh, So, if that doesn't float your boat and you don't want to listen to it, then I suggest you turn this off. But, so, he... She wakes up and he, uh, to him dragging her out of the car and he slams her head down on the side of the car and he has a knife and he's basically telling her that he's going to, she's going to listen to him and he's, she's going to do what he's going to tell her to do and she has no other choice. And at that point, at 17 years old, Marlene's brain goes to her child her daughter and she's in fight or flight and she's going to live for her kid right so he actually uh there remember he's pulled off of an old road off of the highway and he drags her up into the forest and lays her down and it's so sad because she describes this scene where she's kind of sunken down into the earth and she looks over and it's a beautiful scene in this forest and where there's flowers and she remembers how pretty it was and thinking how ironic it is that this is happening to her in such a pretty place it's very compelling Mm -hmm. it's really sad so he ends up um you know of course she's pleading to him you don't need to do this whatever he doesn't care he actually and this is gonna this is a detail that will come into play later in our story he takes a knife and cuts her jeans off from the waist down and cuts her boots off so she's laying out there naked and he brutally rapes her and um really really sad Mm -hmm. marlene talks about it about you know we've all heard the victims of rape and how they they find a place in the back of their head and they just go there Mm -hmm. to get it done and that's kind of what happens to her and so she wakes up and he actually says to her well i don't know what to do with you should i kill you he's kind of like playing with her well you know hmm now that this is done what do i do with you and that's she's pleading for her life you know and for one reason or another he uh, gives her some dirty old pants to put on because at this point she only has a t-shirt on and a little jacket, nothing from the waist down. She has no shoes on. And in Marlene's head, she's thinking, do I stay out here all night in the forest naked or do I go with this guy that just raped me? What do I do? Mm-hmm. And she makes the decision to go with him. So he actually... Uh, 
makes one quick stop in Sweet Home at his mother's house and gets back into the car and drops her off at her house in Lebanon or at her mother-in-law's house in Lebanon. Oh my gosh. And immediately she comes through the door and her mother-in-law knows what something something happened. And this is what's so great about Marlene and I just want to say, you know, she immediately knew that she couldn't take a shower, right? Mm-hmm. Her mother-in-law tried to get her in the bathtub and she was like, fuck no, am I going to shower? That's my evidence against the fucker. I was just raped and we're going to call the police. And I mean, gosh, what a brave mm-hmm. 17-year-old girl that just got brutally raped. Mm-hmm. That to me is amazing, you know? Uh, so she ends up going to the police right and um another really sad aspect about the story she feels like she was discriminated against uh and really she she uh refers to herself she feels like they treated her like a drunken native Mm. american and it's so sad Mm -hmm. i know we talked about um, no one listening to Leona Kinsey's mm-hmm. daughter in that case. And here you have this 17-year-old girl that was just raped, getting upset about it now. Um, and no one's listening to her. But yet she has enough wherewithal to not shower, to take herself to the police, and no one fucking listens to mm-hmm. her. It's it's really upsetting. Sorry. Didn't her mother-in-law, like, treat her like maybe it didn't happen or there was something with her mother-in-law, everyone too. did. Yeah, because, uh, you know, her mother-in-law was, like, I think probably in shock when she saw her. But she, you know, tried to get her in the bathtub and she was drunk and, you know. So they end up interviewing Aykroyd, the fucktard. And he, sorry. Okay. And he... <laughs> he actually has this whole cockamamie story how he did give her a ride home but she actually tried to seduce of him of course right of course yeah. he fucking turns it all on her and actually has this whole story that um you know he tried to have sex with her because that's what she wanted but he couldn't get it up and, da, 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 da. and it was just disgusting listening to it and you can actually hear hear him talking about it because they have these police in uh tapes of him being interviewed years later okay. when he was and that's you know, in the documentary right the, yes mm. and and so you can actually hear what he's freaking telling these people it's disgusting they actually force marlene to take a polygraph test uh to see because they actually think that she's lying about this attack in, in this crime and um they they're like putting in her head that she's the one that's lying so uh, what the more fucktards so horrible so needless to say no charges were ever brought up against john arthur Aykroyd for this horrible crime marlene was felt feeling very discriminated against very helpless nothing ever happened to this asshole Although it was said that Marlene's husband did beat him up. So maybe he got a good beating in there or whatever. But uh, 
so, so sad. Very upsetting. And that's the first episode of this Ghost of Highway 20. And so that's what kind of sucks you in to this whole story and really gets you angry that no one listened to this gal. Because then the next episode takes us to December of 1978. So we're about a year and a half after Marlene. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, our next victim is Kay Turner. And this is a creepy friggin' aspect of this story. She was a 34-year-old married woman from Eugene. And uh, actually on vacation... Uh, in Sisters near Camp Sherman okay. for Christmas. Yeah. Okay? And very upsetting. Uh, Kay was said to be a very sweet, very close with her parents, actually. Before this, ha uh, after this ha happened, her dad actually found a note that she had written to him in a notebook in the garage just saying, Dad, I love you. If you ever find this, I want you to know how much I love you. So this was a woman very close to her family. Mm -hmm. She's on vacation with her husband and another couple. And during this time, Kay uh, started to become interested in running. Running was becoming a popular thing. We talked about this in our Rajneesh episode. <laughs> Everybody was getting those Bill Bowerman shoes with the waffle imprints. She actually had a pair on during what? this. Yes. Nah, -uh. so, she had a pair of the yes. Nike shoes on. Yes, well, with the waffle imprints. Stop it. She did. So Wait, how did you find that out? It's, they, they end up. I'm gonna talk about it, but they oh end my up gosh. The I'm getting like yeah. super chills right now. Right. So as you, you know, it's 1978, and running Prefontaine was a huge thing yeah. in Eugene. Uh, so it's becoming a pretty popular sport, and a really great one because you can just get your shoes on and run anywhere. Right. Mm -hmm. You go on vacation. There you go. You don't need to go find a gym. You're out in the beautiful, beautiful forest Safe. along Highway 20. Safe. Safe. Why you can else go by you, yourself. What, what else? Right. Your You're a female. You, you should be able to run by exactly. yourself. So, she's she decides to go on a run, mm -hmm. and what's really sad is the couple she was with, the other woman, wanted to go with her, but she felt like she couldn't keep up with Kay because at this point Kay had been in a couple of marathons and was pretty avid about it. So she went by herself. Mm -hmm. uh, Another mom tip. Don't go running by yourself when you're on vacation. In the forest. Like, I just, because in... Or, or anywhere. Like, I, I just... I don't think it's a good idea. Take a friend. Take a friend. Uh, so, Kay didn't have a specific route that she was running that day, but she did tell people that she was going to be gone for about an hour. That was about the time that she would run for. Oh, she ran for an hour? That's nice. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> I could run for maybe Damn, a minute. I did it, Kay. And then yeah, I would no, need I people to send help. <laughs> yeah. So after she was supposed to be back, there were no signs of her. Of course, they go out looking for her. Kay's nowhere to be found. So at that point, they call in uh, the Madras Police Department, notifies the Salem Police Department, and they be they begin searching the area. There's actual footage on uh, this documentary from KVAL uh, in 1979 about the search, and um, 
They actually do interview John Ackroyd about this, the police do, because his name comes up, you know, as someone that lives in the area. And they know that, you know, his name was associated with Marlene. So they interview the guy. And he does actually admit that he saw her running that day. So he admits, yeah, I saw that runner, you know, but he doesn't ever, you know, go go into it. Uh, they actually admittedly say that they keep Ackroyd close because, you know, they don't have anything to nail on him, but they have suspicions that he did this. Mm -hmm. uh, so about a year and a half later, some, uh, I think it was a hunter, found some tracks, the Waffle Nike impressions. Oh my gosh. Okay, and this is really creepy. They actually were able to look at these tracks and uh, could definitely see that it was the Waffle Nike impressions with another large boot. They could see the struggles uh, and then it led up to the mountain where they found the body. This is really sad. They looked and there was an actual like bird's nest made out of her hair and stuff. We've talked about that where uh, bodies are left in the mm -hmm. elements and the animals go out and, and do what they. So, um, yeah. So they actually end up finding her body, but Kay's case ended up being still a mystery because they you know they had they had no information about it her body was found a year about a year later uh and actually during their investigation they did find out that Kay had had not one but two boyfriends on the side so she previously to this uh weekend she had visited Two separate boyfriends, right? And her husband, Noel Turner, had no idea. So, well, he says he didn't. So they really thought for a while, was it one of these boyfriends? Sure. Was it the husband? Like, there's all these different things that it just kind of went cold. And nothing ever uh, came out of it. Although, Ackroyd really was their prime suspect here, right? He even took a polygraph test and he failed it. So he had, he had admittedly talked to her that day, but then during the course of their investigation and talking with him, he was changing his story. And at one point, he actually describes her body, her dead body, and where it was at, but says that he had found the body but didn't report it. Uh, and then at that point in the investigation, he asked for attorney and everything stopped. They couldn't they couldn't pin anything on the guy, right? Oh my gosh. So every, okay. Exactly. So not only does he see her, says he sees her, drives by her, but then at some point he also cuz he's got to make sure that he can cover his lie yes. detector, you know, any reason. So then he says he he happened to also see her body. Right. He just at some point he describes how her body was found. Okay to the investigators and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, so they pretty much know that, and, and again, I don't understand why or how they couldn't pin it on him, but they couldn't, mm -hmm. right? Uh, DNA wasn't a thing back then. So, you know, you're talking 1978. We've come a long way with a DNA investigation since then. 
so basically that went cold and our and and really our case does go cold until 1990 so again there are there there's a lot of years there 12 years mm -hmm. where we don't know what this fucker did and this is such a sick sick motherfucker that we know we probably has more victims out mm -hmm. there just because of what we know so far has been very brutal right yeah. and he has access to this highway where basically he can roam it and do whatever the hell he wants yeah he just waits it, for the right time or the he just you know. wait and exactly and we've talked about that before how hauntingly creepy that is uh serial killers jumping on the right opportunity at the right time and what are the odds that Kay would go be there and be a runner and be running by herself on Christmas Eve okay and and this guy sees it and takes the opportunity and nobody Sick sees it and it's just maybe just a flash in time it was just the perfect opportunity right exactly so really, uh, if you think about it, and if you really think about it, this this cocky motherfucker has it in his head. He's already gotten away with Marlene, and probably Who someone knows? before Marlene, yeah, because he didn't have handles in his truck, and so and and now he's gotten away with a murder. Mm -hmm. For thank God he didn't kill Marlene. We don't know why he saved her life, but he did. Mm -hmm. But now he's murdered someone. Didn't she? So, didn't Marlene agree to be his girlfriend? Uh, just to mm -hmm. get home. On the way so home. So they had a little... Yeah. Yes. She was so smart. she had actually said to him, very smart. I mean, the how brave mm -hmm. that young woman was at that age after suffering that attack is amazing. Yeah, but amazing. did he ask her? So she, she was playing along with him and telling him... Oh, she had asked for his phone number. Because she wanted to give it to the police. Oh my gosh. I just remember and watching he that. he said to her, uh, oh, maybe we can hang out again sometime. Or, you know, maybe you can be my girlfriend on the side. <sighs> or something. Yeah, it's just so gross. It's so gross. Like this guy, fucking evil. So really, like I said, that, that takes us to uh, July 1990. And uh, in 1995, he married a woman named Linda. And uh, Linda had two kids at the time that they got married, Byron and Rashonda. And so in 1990, he had been married to uh, Linda for about five years and was a stepdad to Byron and Rashonda. And uh, just a little backstory on Rashonda. She was 13 years old when she went missing, but she was described as being pretty goofy. Her nickname was Punky Brewster. I love that. I loved Punky Brewster. Uh, she she loved her friends, and she she was overall seemed to be a happy kid for what she was going through. Again, I want to point out we're going to talk about Rashonda and some of the stuff she had to endure at the tender age of 13 and when she's described she's described as a great kid so it's just amazing it's crazy so at the time uh in 1990 uh 
Rashonda and Byron, they're brother and sister. Their mom is married to John. And Byron and Rashonda are very close because they've been raised by a single mother. And um, Byron's on the interviews and uh, really talks about his relationship with his sister and how they really needed to rely on each other for emotional support. And you can tell in watching the interview with Linda, Linda is on these interviews as well. Um, I mean, I don't want to badmouth a single mom out there, but there is definitely a level of denial going on with this woman and everything that she's she put her kids through. Mm. And, and she's even on there. Um, so she's saying at the time, she really felt like John provided stability for her kids. Right. And so I get it. Uh, and that's why I say I don't want to bash her. But the person that she chose to provide the stability, probably she should have looked into it a little further. At the time, they lived uh, at Saniam Junction, which is an ODOT compound at the summit of the Saniam Pass. It's a small community at the intersection of U.S. Route 20 and Oregon 126. So it's right there where it splits off. Okay. There's a little small ODOT community uh made up of maintenance facilities and families that work there okay. right and john john lived there at the time and so linda's on there saying that you know she wanted to provide her kids with a stable upbringing a home one that they hadn't had before that time uh and and the kids are and byron actually says you know it's really sad because he's explaining that for the first time in their lives, they could actually go out to pizza, and that to them felt like they had money. Mm -hmm. Like that was that was heartbreaking to me. Like, oh my gosh, you know, a a trip to a pizza parlor was enough for them to be like, oh, this, you know, was enough to entice them in. And Linda, it, Linda describes John as appearing very calm, you know, and a stable person. There's a lot of denial going on there with her interviews, right? Because when you when you watch Byron talk about everything that they went through, and then you watch her talk about what they went through, she's definitely defending the reasons why she put her kids in that situation. Mm -hmm. And it's frustrating to watch. So even now, as time has gone by, she is still kind of like in denial about why she married him. Obviously, yes. you know, the having some stability in her life, even financially, um, for her and her kids was a big um, draw for her, right? But maybe she wasn't in touch with what was really who he was and how he was actually really treating them, right? Or treating the kids. Exactly. Okay. Because it was uh, reported that behind closed doors... He was pulling Rashonda's hair. She had come to school with a chunk of hair pulled out. She had come to school with black eyes. She was actually telling her friends that he was hurting her. Uh, on the interview, Linda denies all this. So I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I Also in this documentary, you... There's an actual description of John talking about him disciplining the kids 
and uh, you know how he was basically forced to discipline them because she told him to type of thing just really sad really sad so that takes us to the summer of 1990 the kids are not happy in this situation and they want to go to Medford to live with their dad their real dad and they they're for the summer and they're like mom let us do it so she actually lets them do it so Rashonda and Byron go to Medford and they're with their biological father and it was said that Rashonda actually starts to open up to him or some kind of conversation comes out where she had been molested by someone in Linda's past and possibly being molested by John Nail. Oh my gosh. And exactly. 13 years old, people. 13 years old. So I don't know really what kind of events took place, but for some reason or another, Rashonda was sent back to her mother. <laughs> after all this drama came out and uh she didn't want to go mm -hmm. that's the well, thing yes she didn't... hello and yeah and she was telling everybody i don't want to go back there i don't want to go back to john she would tell anybody who would listen to her and um she was actually dropped off in sweet home and had to get a ride back to sandy m junction and before she got back to Sanium Junction, she uh, found a friend to stay with, and they were talking about how resourceful and smart she was. So at this age where, you know, she has no one really, she would find a friend to stay with, and no matter what, and she would... Uh, her friends are on there and this totally reminded me of you and I like her friends actually forged a note <laughs> for her to come home to school with them so she wouldn't have to go home and they kept her for as long as they could until their parents were like she needs to leave. okay <laughs> but it totally like I empathized with the little 13 year old girl that found solace with her friends because I mean I think you were definitely one of the reasons why I got through my teen mm -hmm. years and our friendship and there were definitely times where I didn't feel loved unless I was with you mm -hmm. right yeah and and that's sad and I think that's why we got into some trouble you know and and not to say that I wasn't loved. I have very loving parents that devoted their life to me. But when you're, I mean, and for me to think that, I didn't have this shit going on that she did. Yeah. So it's really sad. So she was described as being very resourceful, very fun to be with, even though all this was going on. Again, no one would listen to her. She went to a school counselor no one listened to her. That is so upsetting. It just, it angers me. Uh, I think it's interesting because I think about just um, mandatory reporting. Like, as, you know, a mandatory reporter, you're required to report. And it's so surprising to me as a parent or a step-parent or, you know, the, the biological parent, you know, I think there could be reasons why they chose or, I mean, you hear these stories all the time of, 
of of this happening, how it keeps happening or why it's happening or the abuse of us by the step parent and the parent doesn't believe it and puts the, the partner yeah. first and the kids get alienated and abused and they run away. I don't get it, but I don't get it either. Really, really mm-hmm. sad, but she what's sad is she ends up really having a conversation with her dad again about john arthur Ackroyd, and it was said that um he was gonna do something about it like he tells her Mm. and byron i'm gonna do something well she she was never seen from again the next day after that conversation so her last uh the last known person to see her was John Arthur Ackroyd. She was home alone with him on July 10th, 1990. The story goes, she went out for a walk and they don't know where she, and, and he never saw her again. I mean, come on. He had some cockamamie story that he was out that day taking pictures because he was a photographer. He wanted to be a photographer and even Linda was like, he never took pictures like that. That's a, that was a weird story. So he does put himself out there where she was last seen, but really sad. Rashonda Pickle is never seen again. So uh, there's media footage from KEZI in 1990 where they've, they, they start searching the forest. They're searching the lava forests in the area she's nowhere they she's gone and so it was around that time that the jefferson county da his last name is hanlon started pushing for the k turner case because obviously red flags are going up everywhere and they're like this guy has something to do with his stepdaughter going missing Mm. and he has something to do with k turner Mm. so they really start pushing uh, and they get a new da in there and they get going on the Kay Turner case, and that is eventually how they ca- how they get this guy, right? Okay. So, but during their investigation with Rashonda, uh, Ackroyd even goes to far as describing that her body may be laying out in the forest with a log over it. So he's adding all these like weird descriptions and stuff. They're pretty sure they know where, you know, he has something to do with it, but there's no evidence. They don't have any, they can't, they, for some reason, can't pin it on the guy, right? There's no trace of her. Interesting because, I mean, now we know, and I don't know when laws changed, but, um, you know, we used to be able to, you needed a body, right? And now I know exactly. you don't You don't need a body, but I think it's per state maybe. I don't know if every state follows that um, or even in the 90s what that was like. Um, yeah. But it just sounds like they, they just did not have enough and he obviously wasn't confessing at this point. No. Yeah. Definitely not confessing, but they were definitely keeping him close because they wanted they want you know they wanted him to probably hang himself right so kim was there in the documentary are there continued recordings of these interviews of him because the first part that i watched there i remember the recording of him but do they play them throughout the documentary they play these recordings throughout the documentary and that's where you're picking up what he's saying about the tackle marlene 
where you know his description is of seeing Kay. Okay. Uh, his descriptions of having to discipline the kids. You know, the, it's really hard to listen to because mm-hmm. at this point into the watching it, you really hate this guy, this fucktard. <laughs> So it's really hard to get through. I'll just wait till you look at pictures of him online. For, yeah, uh, I mean, I don't know if we'll post one because I just can't. Well, and maybe we should just refer him. to him by his... Kim, let's call him his Kim-given name because Fuck-tart. I don't think we should give him the dignity of saying his name and I don't I'm not gonna post a picture of him on Instagram I hope you don't luckily the guy's dead and we're gonna talk about that he ends up dying in prison so yay for that but also sad because there's a lot more crimes there that we don't know know that he that the answers died with him so very sad but yeah we'll figure out what we want to post I know (laughs) we're not sure Let's just get through this episode. I know. And we'll talk about God, fucked hard. Yeah. So, as I said, I, that Jefferson County DA really pushes for the K Turner case, and in actually, in 1992, he was convicted along with his friend Roger Dale Beck of killing K Turner. So there were and what two happened, of them. Yes. So what happened there is. This other creep, Roger Beck, and I didn't really investigate Roger Beck or anything, but he knew John Ackroyd at the time, was a said friend of his. He began, of course, started bragging about killing Kay, right? And uh, there's interviews on here of people in this dude's life that he had bragged about killing Kay for years, and no one took him seriously like i mean so definitely this came out Ackroyd had a really sad defense saying that uh actually came up with a defense there it's really sad to watch because there's his defense attorney on there and i just watched that attorney thinking how the hell could you sleep at night like defending this guy and coming up with this cockamamie story, but they have this whole story that he did see another runner out there that day that Kay was killed. They actually found another lady that was running that day, okay, that was around the a- Kay's age, and she was brought in as a uh, to testify as a witness for John. And so this is really creepy. This woman lived in the Camp Sherman area at the time of Kay's murder, right? And she was getting into run. Uh, she was actually working around that area. Sorry. She was uh, riding her bike home one day. And she describes riding her bike down this uh, road. You know, no one's there. Lonely stretch of highway. And she was riding without the handlebars, without her, you know, and so just going along and she sees this truck and she looks over and as she's approaching the truck, the guy pulls a gun on her and is like, has the gun pointed on her? And she at that point just decides to bear down. She grabs the handlebars and she starts going as fast as she can, but she's weaving her bike 
because she knows that that's going to be harder for him. And she does. He doesn't shoot. She never looks back. Well, as she's sitting in the frigging courtroom testifying that, yes, she was running that day, that same day Kay was, she realizes that the man with a gun was John Aykroyd, dude. So <clears throat> she could have, like, she's sitting there going, that I could be dead. Mm-hmm. Like, for some reason or another, I could have been his victim. Yeah. You know, just so chilling. So after four hours mm. of deliberation, he, along with Roger Beck, was convicted almost 15 years after Kay Turner was killed. He was he was convicted uh, with basically no evidence that it was him and no eyewitnesses that was him. But, you know, everybody knows it was him, you know. So definitely this sick freak went to prison. And in 2010, he was actually up for parole again. And keep in the back of your head that they always felt like he had something to do with Rashonda, right? Rashonda has never been found. That poor family, you know, she's never been seen from again. So uh, in 2010, he's, he goes up for parole again and they start to talk to him again about the Rashonda case. Because they really want to pin it on him, sure. right? They don't want this guy to ever be able to walk out free again. And... Um, he actually ends up uh, doing a no contest plea in 2013 for Rashonda's case, which means he isn't actually admitting what happened. He isn't actually denying that he did anything, right? But with that plea, uh, it meant that he would definitely stay behind bars for the rest of his life, right? And never be brought up on any charges again about it. But uh he and he couldn't seek parole again so basically they were at a point where they could take Rashonda's case to trial Mm -hmm. and go with a chance uh that they could convict him or they could take this plea and byron the brother describes he actually was the one person that had to make that decision that linda his mom didn't help him with that so really sad the whole burden of Rashonda was on him Mm -hmm. but really why he agreed to that plea was because it solidified the fact that he would be in prison the rest of his life and he really didn't want him out there on the streets again right yeah uh which was probably a really good thing because they know they they know there are two other victims and we're going to talk about this in our next episode and there is another victim that you're going to talk about right they're almost positive that john Ackroyd killed melissa saunders and sheila swanson okay uh during this time as well they were found murdered they were camping with some families over uh at beverly beach state park we're going to talk about their case next week because it all ties in with John Aykroyd. They're almost positive that John Aykroyd killed these other two girls, but it was never pinned on him. He never admitted anything, uh, but he did know these two girls. And fortunately or unfortunately, how you want to look at it, he died in prison in 2016. 
So a lot of those unanswered questions died with him. Mm -hmm. There's this whole other story out there that we're going to talk about next week that this family, uh, you know, basically doesn't have the answers what happened to these two girls, these two teenagers, and it's really sad for them. Uh, you're and they're on the ghost of highway 20 as well in episode four and it's just it's really sad for them that they don't have the answers i'm, I'm happy that this guy's actually dead and he's not hurting other people but uh i think after going down these rabbit holes with this story just to wrap up this one today I think I ended up getting really angry about it at times. Yeah. Like I said, because no one listened to Marlene and no one listened to Rashonda. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it just was really upsetting. And it, it brought me back to our other stories on Leona, yeah. you know, and, and everything we've talked about. Um, I mean, the fact that these a... women were given, or one of them was given a lie detector test, or oh, as a 13-year-old girl, she's not, you know, Rashonda isn't um, believed by her family members, or maybe they didn't take it seriously, maybe right. they were planning on doing something, but I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why people or parents don't pursue things. I mean, who knows what all of that was about, but... I mean, can you imagine, like, what, I mean, just the, you know, why, let me ask why, why, why would someone lie about it? I mean, maybe there are women out there or vic- people who have claimed to be victims, but why would somebody do that to themselves and make up some story? Like, what would be the right. benefit of that, you know? I, I I have no idea. It's It's just a creepy, hauntingly creepy story. Also because there's so many years there. Yeah. There's a lot of years before Marlene's attack. You cannot tell me that this guy didn't do it before Marlene and then didn't do anything from the time he killed Kay to when Rashonda went missing, mm-hmm. you know? And just to think all that stretch of highway that this asshole had access to all those offshoot camping roads that he knew about those abandoned roads you know logging roads and this guy had access to all of it and was basically set set out there to do whatever the hell he wants Mm -hmm. really really creepy it really this story i i want to say made me angry uh really angry and um just really i felt i felt really bad for that family that we're going to talk about next week okay. that still doesn't have answers but um i'm excited to talk about <laughs> excited to keep going with this for next and week. kim i just want to say that um i appreciate you doing like i i don't think i watched all of highway 20 ghost of highway 20 all the way through i just kind of like threw it on your lap to do and so i appreciate you putting in the time definitely go watch it man yeah like seriously just put it on you'll hear the mm-hmm. song of the mm-hmm. the minute you hear it it's like <laughs> okay truck stops I mean, it, I give kudos to Lucinda Williams, the song. Yeah, it's haunting. Kudos to, it is haunting. And the fact that Noelle Crombie spent years researching this story, I mean, there's so much there to research. But 
um, to throw yourself into the, just this, like we talk about these little rabbit holes yeah. that we get going down and we throw ourselves into them. But to, you know, put this energy into this sick fucktard for all these years and produce this documentary, I, I want to give her kudos. It's definitely worth watching. And I hope you guys tune in to next week and hear about these next two victims because, again, it's a sad story about two teenagers who probably didn't think anything could happen to them, right? I've I've been there. Yeah. You and I have definitely been there. We believe we're invincible and at that point. Of course. Yeah. And uh, we, we definitely, as teens, put ourselves into some pretty dangerous situations sure. where I'm looking back now as an adult going what the hell how did we live through that thinking how how did we live through it but somehow we did and we're here today to talk about all the creepiness going out there in the world well i want to say kim thanks for sharing and also like i hope right now you just go out for a walk with your mom i'm gonna maybe you know head out and do something uh (laughs) go get some stickers girl what Stickers. Yes, go I'm gonna get some stickers. I still haven't done that. I'm go- I'm gonna yes. do it. I'm gonna pull my stickers out. All right. Okay. I will head off to a walk. You're gonna go hit the craft store, get some stickers for Sticker Club, and I'll see you next week. Sounds good. Love you, girl. Okay. I love you too. All right. What'd you think? Uh,